This next podcast is for the fan up on the balcony. It's called We Hate You, Please Die. Today we're talking about Scott Pilgrim. and welcome back to Phanthropological. My name is Nick G, and today we are going to be talking about everyone's favorite precious little life. We're going to be talking about Scott Pilgrim and the people who love it, and here with me to do that are my two best friends, Nick T. I'll take you to the dump, because you're my queen. <laughs> I Okay, honestly, I wanted to try to learn something on the ukulele, but I forgot that I don't know how to play the ukulele, and I didn't have enough time to do it. <laughs> We're off to a great start there, Captain. <laughs> That's how this usually works. <laughs> Always the best start. And Nick Z. I don't know why, but all I can think of is trucks. <laughs> something about garbage, maybe. <sighs> uh, I don't know. I know there's something coming over me here. I think we're reaching your threshold. <laughs> oh! <laughs> there we go. I can smell something quite pungent. That's, that's the... Uh... <laughs> That's the lightning fast wordplay that we've come to expect from these opening mm-hmm. segments. Also today, joining us as a special guest. Special guest, reveal your identity. Hello, Internet. My name is Matthew Tyler DeLeo. I am better known as the intergalactic sex demon known as Sonic MTD and the lead singer of the best Canadian rock and roll band as of the past five minutes. City and Wires <laughs> coming at you live from my little place of Eden located in Mississauga. Welcome. Thank you. I, I don't know why I welcomed you guys. It's your podcast. <laughs> it's still but nice it, to be welcome. Not that many people do it. <laughs> yes. It's funny that you mentioned being an intergalactic sex demon. I did not know that you were part of Incubus. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of in-jokes and references that are involved with my music career that also seem to blend very nicely into today's subject matter, which, of course, is going to be on Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're the expert, but for some reason, I'm going to give a little bit of history about Scott Pilgrim, or a a very brief introduction. If you're watching this or listening to this and you don't know what the heck Scott Pilgrim is, I would ask, what have you been doing with your life? (laughs) But after I ask that question, I would tell you a little bit about Scott Pilgrim. Scott Pilgrim is a series of graphic novels by Brian Lee O'Malley. He's, He's got like this <laughs> i'm like a little lost at sea you know seconds he's done some things <laughs> the series about canadian scott pilgrim a slacker and part-time musician who lives in toronto ontario and plays bass guitar in a band he falls in love with american delivery girl ramona flowers but must defeat her seven evil exes in order to date her uh, that doesn't seem quite right because i'm pretty sure he dates her regardless of the exes mm-hmm. the series consists of six books which i already showed off uh, and was released between August 2004 and July 2010. A film adaptation of the series was released in August of 2010, starring everybody's favorite, definitely not Tobey Maguire, Michael Sarah. <laughs> he has a type. He has a type. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I feel like half this episode, I'm going to have to like go through the books. <laughs> Andy Kaufman style. In addition to giving a little bit of background on Scott Pilgrim, I decided to kind of try to find out how popular the series is using the only yardstick that I found that's fairly reliable, and that is Google Trends. 
Mm -hmm. And if I told everyone on the podcast that Scott Pilgrim was a flash in the pan, what would they say? Uh, I mean, I would believe it compared to some of the other things we've covered and a fair few other fandoms. Okay. How would you describe a, a flash in the pan? What would what would be technically your definition of it? Uh, well, in this particular case, looking at the Google Trends data, mm-hmm. we have like a big spike and then a really big drop off. Yeah, that seems about right, actually. <laughs> I, I, I don't mean to disparage the, the movie or the graphic novels. I really enjoyed them. But mm-hmm. compared to, like Z had said, many other things that we've seen, it's a very dramatic change in interest. Mm-hmm. Well, the major thing that I got from the popularity of Scott Pilgrim is it was very much a sign of the times. It came mm-hmm. out roughly around the same time as mo- more modern rock things. Like at, at the time of the Brian Lee O'Malley movie, Much Music in Canada was also showing a rock anime of the same vein called Beck Mongolian Chop Squad. Yeah. Which, yes. I think we all watched it, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I still have to review it. (laughs) But at the time, it was in this this sort of perfect Goldilocks zone where being a, a rock and roll musician and combining sort of elements of British style with manga style like kick-ass and fight scenes it just really caught wildfire at the most unexpected time but i i would probably say that what did it for people was the the movie done by edgar wright previously known for hot fuzz Shaun of the dead and so on and so forth when that movie came out it's just like everybody joined in and then immediately after the the success of the movie People rushed out and got the novels, but it primarily, it it became a slow simmer and it started echoing through, but it wasn't quite as violent as when the the original movie dropped. Yeah, that's fair. So the movie came out in August 2010, as mentioned, Mm -hmm. and that's, I wasn't sure which was more popular. The answer is the movie by a very, very large margin. Mm-hmm. But when the movie was released in the opening weekend, I think I have, yeah, it raised $10.5 million at the box office, mm-hmm. but the movie cost $60 million to make. Mm-hmm. Wow. So regardless of all the various criticism that the movie had, there are people who loved it, there are people who hated it. Mm-hmm. It didn't do well commercially. Mm-hmm. I believe that it opened the same weekend as The Expendables. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I don't see a huge crossover between the two audiences, but like no. it was against a much bigger movie and in a lot fewer screens. It wasn't opening night or anything, but it was like the week of. And I remember going to see it in like a half empty theater and being mm-hmm. like this. There is no movie that is more aimed like directly exactly at my generation. Than this <laughs> movie. Yes, you brought up a very good point because the, the movie in on itself, there was a huge divide of people that were watching it it was primarily catering to the those that were in their 20s 30s and younger and anyone older than that unless you grew up with you know video game references and stuff like that uh it wasn't really a movie that was for you i watched it with my father um we we had it on dvd and once again i i turned to him and i'm like isn't this an amazing movie and he's just like there's so many jump cuts and zooms i can't focus (laughs) and at that point, I realized that there was that huge generational split because I, I did go on to Rotten Tomatoes uh, and I believe altogether it made like 31 million. I, I have the number here, 31,494,270. And I believe that's just from its theatrical run 
and mm-hmm. compare that to maybe the the 60 million. And this definitely feels like it was a less financially successful movie as opposed to Hot Fuzz, Shaun of the Dead, and all the other movies that are part of Edgar Wright and the Cornello trilogy. Everyone I talk to about it doesn't realize that it's an Edgar Wright movie. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't follow on logically from <laughs> Hot Fuzz. Well, because everyone knows Edgar Wright for the Cornello trilogy, which usually <laughs> yeah. involves Simon Pegg, Nick Frost, and throwing together all the different genre films. So him to do something outside of that realm. The same goes for Baby Driver, except more people knew that Baby Driver was Edgar Wright, but with Scott Pilgrim, it was such a niche thing as well. And that sort of ties into Brian Lee O'Malley. I mean, his work, pretty much all of his work, with the exception of Scott Pilgrim, just because it caught fire, has been incredibly niche with a small core group that latch onto it and hold it as their new religion. But for everyone else, it's just like, yeah, that was a book. I feel like snot girl maybe is a bit more approachable to like a lay person and a little bit less niche mm-hmm. but still it's it's not super popular i think by comparison i'm trying to remember uh so i know he did seconds after scott pilgrim was mm-hmm. snot girl before or after i think snot girl happens after seconds and it's it's okay. about like for people who who have not heard of snot girl it's about this like kind of fashion blogger who has like the side she projects of herself online and then her real self mm-hmm. and there's more to the story than that but that that's the relatable part mm-hmm. i guess more relatable if you live in la or somewhere in <laughs> southern california because it's definitely got that kind of attitude to it or if you have anything to deal with broadcasting yeah. or being an online personality <laughs> <laughs> you can have an integrative personality it's just you know some some people don't like that <laughs> that is true it's not girls also his first collaboration with somebody else i'm pretty sure oh okay that mm. that makes a big difference too yeah anyway. different styles different personalities all sort of blending so i guess brian uh, because of the the success of scott pilgrim maybe he's sort of trying to move towards something that's more accepted and maybe through getting another writer or maybe someone working with him he'll he'll find a more mainstream niche with that who knows but um in regards to like, cause we're all, we're all part of the, the broadcast universe. Like we all project who we want our audience to look towards, but when they're not looking, when the camera's off, we're usually completely different people. Yes. Like, uh, my broadcasting personality right now is like me ratcheted up to about 11. <laughs> and then the moment the camera turns off, I'm just basically sitting there in a t-shirt and jeans going, I'm bored. <laughs> One thing I just want to point out, I've, I've heard I've heard a lot of it over over the years, but it's like, I like how, like, a joke that was originally hilarious from Spinal Tap is now just lingo. Huh. Like, up to 11? Yeah. People might say that now and not even, like, know where it's from, or that, like, yeah. Like, and it's not a, it's not a joke anymore. It's just, like, that's, that's, that's the highest. It's one higher. Well, once again, it's a sign of the times. Uh, Spinal Tap was very much a product of the 80s and i actually it's very astute that you brought up spinal tap because just like spinal tap i get the feeling that scott pilgrim versus the world the movie at least is going to be very much a time capsule for the mid to late 2000s and then eventually there will be sort of a, a generation that will watch it later and go what what was the what was the fuss behind that <laughs> i feel like even wayne's world has that to an extent about the early 90s Oh, definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
speaking of of time capsules and things like that i tried to get some demographics on scott pilgrim Mm-hmm. sometimes there are really dedicated fans and there's something there this time there wasn't but imdb does have something mm-hmm. unsurprisingly folks who rated the movie the majority of them were between 18 to 44 like the largest mm-hmm. group is 18 to 29 at 38 percent second largest group 30 to 44 with 37 percent predominantly male about 68 percent as compared to female 15 percent i really wish there was just like a tiny little bit more data but uh, I couldn't find anything. Mm, that's rather unfortunate. Mm, yeah. And I tried to find out some fun other fan activity stuff. I found that there's 150 Scott Pilgrim works on Archive of Our Own, which is a really big repository of mm. mostly fanfic. And I was like, oh, there'll be some really fun stuff in here. But because the set of data is so small, there's not really a lot going on. There's definitely some crossover with other universes. One of the results was like, Scott Pilgrim of Steven Universe. Huh. Oh, yeah. I, I see it's that. It's plausible. Uh, yeah. But generally, it, it sounds like not a lot of fanfic going on there either. Again, potentially because the zeitgeist of it was like around 2010. Yeah. So that's what I managed to find in terms of a little bit of background on Scott Pilgrim before we start talking about it. Before we did start talking about it. It's fine. <laughs> it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like there's ever a clean break between that and, <laughs> and the general discussion. No, not mm. ever. Ah. All right, I'll just say it. Will Scott Pilgrim die with our generation? Ooh. Uh, <laughs> I got to be very careful on how I approach this because I'm probably going... <laughs> if I if I say what's truly on my mind, there's a good chance there's going to be like a small crowd of pitchforks outside mm-hmm. my door. We are going to list your address in the show notes, so uh, be careful. Yeah, perfect. That's <laughs> our artistic duty, right? That's right. <laughs> a lot of people living at 123 Fake Street. Yes. <laughs> One, two, three, Dick Street, Z. My mistake. So, (laughs) the best thing I can say about Scott Pilgrim in regards to this, he has dedicated followers who will carry it with them and show it to their friends. And even outside of that, Scott Pilgrim lives on in not only the fandom, but in also the music. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not just saying that because of you know i was in a scott pilgrim themed band but i'm talking about there are echoes of not only the style but the genre of music that sort of carry on into the toronto music scene Mm. one of the things that i showed you in the document of my notes for example Mm -hmm. uh, indie 88 did a small little uh presentation they always have this thing called band in a movie okay where basically they have a band come in perform an entire set, and afterwards they show a movie that means something to the band. And a little while ago, uh, a Canadian band called Dear Rouge uh, did one for Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. So that was sort of a, an echo of, even though people aren't showcasing their fandom quite as often, it is echoing throughout the Toronto music scene. Okay. And it is very much a landmark, much like Honest Ed's. But that being said, just like Honest Ed's, eventually the landmark will eventually fall, but it will live on, but not as strong as it was when it was there. Yeah. We were talking about that before we started, about um, people making the Scott pilgrimage. (laughs) um... (laughs) Is is that what we're doing? We're just going to just come up with a whole bunch of Scott pilgrim riffs? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's all riffs. At, um, how many I'm at? Bathurst and... Bloor? 
Blur? Is it Blur? Yeah. What what exactly? Why, why? Where where Honest Ed's was and like Lee's Palace and oh. Sonic Boom. Okay. Like uh, so give me a second. Honest Ed's. Ha! I did do this work. I did this work <laughs> last night. Uh, Honest Ed's. It is Blur and Bathurst. It's in your, in your yeah. 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 It's Blur and Bathurst. Uh, Lee's Palace uh, is also the Bathurst and Blur area. They're, they're a couple blocks away from each other. Yeah. It's not even now quite the same as, as, as when filmed. Mm-hmm. Well, because Honest Ed's uh, was demolished earlier this year. Yeah. They tore down the sign, and there are plans currently of putting it up near the Ed Mervish Theater. Honest Ed mm. is uh, in reference to Ed Mervish, a, I guess you'd call him a, a philanthropist of downtown Toronto. Mm-hmm. The funny thing was is that I was watching uh, footage of the demolition, and the only thing I could think of was the Todd Ingram fight when they're running around <laughs> Honest Ed's and it collapses in almost the exact same way. And I'm like, oh. ooh, <laughs> this is foreshadowing. There's a good uh, trailer to be cut there, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Matt, you mentioned being in a Scott Pilgrim-themed band. How did that happen? Like, you like read Scott Pilgrim and you're like, oh, that was pretty good. I guess I could make a band about it. It was one of those things that just happened at the right place at the right time. So I was starting my YouTube career and my music career at roughly about the same time. I I didn't have any faith in my ability, but I ran into a girl who basically said, you should start a band. And I'm like, I guess I'm going to start a band. (laughs) (laughs) Makes sense. Mm Mm-hmm. And I tried auditioning for a lot of other bands and nothing seemed to work out. And then I finally heard a response from someone on Craigslist saying, hey, I see you here all the time. I just hope that you find something. And I'm like, well, do you play something? Well, I play bass. Do you want to make something? And so we we started getting people together and we started doing a group uh, to perform at our college. We were at Sheridan College at the time. And um, we didn't have a name. We called ourselves the Cranes just because we had a song called the Paper Cranes. And then after that concert, the movie came out, the Edgar Wright movie. And I know that our co-founding member, uh, Sean Doe, his last name isn't Doe, but he likes being called that, uh, was a huge fan of Scott Pilgrim. So much so that at our first gig, he dressed up, he had the the red Rickenbacker <laughs> bass, he oh, had a, a green wow. t-shirt that had Bob Alam on it. And I'm just like, okay, you're, <laughs> you're a fan of this, but let's go nuts. And so we watched the movie. And then afterwards, when we're walking out of the movie at square one, I'm just like, yeah, I can kind of see why you guys like this. I got to say, I, I love the movie. And my girlfriend at the time basically turned to me and goes, you know what you should do? You should find a female drummer and i was like oh like kim pine and at that point our drummer william who's who was with the band he just took one good look and he's like thanks for replacing me guys and i i took one good look at uh you know my my girlfriend at the time and i said so we're searching for kim and the name stuck and we were playing uh shows in and around downtown toronto from about 2010 till around 2015 carrying on music that was relatively in the same vein of scott pilgrim Mm mm-hmm but it was more about the attitude, the onstage presence, rather than the the core principles of the music. And we we had a very enjoyable time, but uh, at the same time, I realized this now. It wasn't until I started writing for this episode. We never did a single venue that was actually featured in Scott oh, Pilgrim. Really? We did 
all the other ones like we did El Macombo, we did the Sound Academy when it was still up and running, we did Smiling Buddha, we did we did pretty much every single venue in Toronto except those that were actually <laughs> featured in the graphic novel and the movie. You've since played Lee's Palace, right? No, I haven't played Lee's Palace yet. Oh, I thought you had. If they're willing to talk to us, that'd be great. Oh, you you saw my Instagram photo, didn't you? Yeah, that's... Uh, that's okay. So one of the things that happens at Lee's Palace, uh, it's now like a couple times a year, is um, they have new music from Tokyo, where they get a bunch of bands fresh off the boat from Japan, bring them down, and go tour all throughout Canada. Hmm. So I'm, like they start in Quebec, then they go into Ontario, where they basically do the Rivoli and Lee's Palace, and then they start going around to the hit Vancouver, and then back on the plane, and then back to Japan. But I try my best to go to that every single time it passes through it's one of my my favorite things and uh what has adapted into my stage presence and my songwriting comes a lot from taking japanese influences taking british rock influences very much like brian Lee O'Malley did with scott pilgrim versus the world because very much canadian but british flash and uh, a little bit of japanese manga format and fight structure so even after my Scott Pilgrim themed band, it is still following me <laughs> for years and years and years. It carries on in your heart. If Ryan ever watches this, I'm madly in lesbians with you. <laughs> you just got to bring it back to uh, the big, the L word. It's very important. Well, it's all about lesbians, you know? It's like the Beatles said, all you need is lesbians. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. No, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the Mandela effect. We all remember it wrong. Z, what was your first impression of watching the movie? Oh, boy. Uh, I got to go way back for that one. But uh, All the way to 2010, I would imagine. All the way back to 2010. I mean, like, I want to say my first impression was that I really enjoyed it. I can't get past my impression of it now. Yeah. I really wish I'd rewatched it before this because, like, right now, I feel like going back to watch it would be exactly what matt was saying going back and watching a time capsule just feels like it's only been eight years feels like it's maybe 20 feels very removed from like the culture around me (laughs) do you mean maybe because it wasn't a horrible world that we were living in eight years ago (laughs) it seems probably probably very different is everyone here a bojack horseman viewer oh that's a good contrast I haven't actually watched BoJack, but go on. Okay. This is not not a spoiler at all, but at a certain point, they do a flashback episode to 2007. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, man, that's not that long ago. How could it, like, it'll just be today, but they do a very good job of making it feel like 2007. <laughs> and uh, watching yeah. Scott Pilgrim is probably, like, also, too, because it reminds me of being about the age of Scott. Yes. Mm. Yes. So, like, I uh, identified with that movie pretty hard. I think that's what's a really big part of Scott Pilgrim. I can look back and it's like, oh, I liked it because it looks like manga. I could say that it's because, oh, there's all these video game references. And yeah, I absolutely love meta and video game references and and whatnot. But I think looking back at the movie and looking back at the graphic novels, it's that relatable to the time. If you're older or younger, it maybe isn't. But like for me, relatable to this person who's like working to understand themselves better and dating and he's never really done any of this before and he doesn't really have any self-awareness yeah yeah 
and that's all very relatable even looking back in like a cringy kind of way <laughs> yeah, i don't know what other people's experiences are though how old is scott Scott is actually like 22, 23 during mm-hmm. the, the run of the graphic novels because the graphic novel compared to the movie, and there's going to, if we're really going to get into it, this is where I'm going to shine. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. Okay. The movies versus the graphic novels, the first major thing is timeline-wise. So in the graphic novels, the entire events happen throughout the course of a year. Scott grows as a person Whereas the movie happens over the, the course of a few short weeks, which I'm sitting there and I'm watching it going, okay, but how can you say that someone is able to character change or to have that, that growth as a human being in such a short time where in real life it takes months, if not years, to eventually turn around? Don't get me wrong. Scott Pilgrim is a consistent dick. Like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. I know you wanted to get my opinion of that for the last word, but I'm going to jump into that. Sure. So in order to get this done, I talked to members of the original fan communities, which was on a Ing forum board way back in the day. And I do want to give a very uh, humble thank you to Rebecca Blanchard and Aaron Enchetta, who's probably watching this podcast. But um, they were essentially talking about Rebecca said something along the lines of Scott Pilgrim is a trash dillweed and always <laughs> will be a trash dillweed. And I'm like, what the heck is a dillweed? But it kind of works. Cause once again, Brian Lee O'Malley made this character who's pretty much wholly unlikable right off the bat. Like the very first volume, if you're a fan of the movies and you did what I did and immediately got the graphic novel, like a little while later and you read through the first volume, you're just like, I don't think I have the ability to finish this. It is just way too cruel. <laughs> what is going on with Scott knives? Cause knives is like incredibly likable. And then Scott is just like, yeah, he's a complete and total dick. Who's stringing along this poor girl. Yeah. Scott, you are the salt of the earth. No, wait, sorry, <sighs> Scott, you are the scum of the earth. Scum of the earth. <laughs> But yeah, there was a a lot of key differences between the graphic novel and the Edgar Wright film. And a lot of that boiled down to there's some stuff that you would be able to get away with in a graphic novel that you wouldn't be able to get away with in a film and vice versa. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. So in Scott Pilgrim versus the world, they, they have this clash with Todd Ingram that originally starts in Lee's palace and then they continue it later in like the next day the following day at honest eds and for the movie it just would make more sense if they got that fight right there and then inside lee's palace because there's too long a stretch of time in order to justify the pacing for that in regards to the the scott pilgrim versus the world uh movie and the, the the graphic novel one of the bizarre things that I think helped it was we had a sort of weird chicken or the egg thing. Like what came first? Cause the graphic novel was still being made around the time the movie happened. Right. And the movie actually influenced the ending of the graphic novel because they had the original ending where Scott and knives were supposed to get together and they showed that to test audiences and they really did not like that because oh. it basically felt like, he went through all of that and he still ended up with knives in the end. And they're just like, 
yeah, we're going to we're going to redo the ending and we're going to have it where he gets together with Ramona and it was approved by the people that were there and so Brian Lee O'Malley eventually finished <laughs> the rest of the graphic novel based upon the the Edgar Wright ending. That's yeah, interesting. You've got some sort of like Utena stuff going on huh. where you have convergence and then divergence. But yeah, the graphic novel goes in like a very very different direction actually that was one of the things i remember reading a bunch of criticism about mm-hmm. not so much the divergence because that that's going to happen when it's an unfinished work mm-hmm. but it was talking about how the graphic novel and the movies have like a very different tone because of the different formats mm-hmm. for example the graphic novels are really good at portraying ramona in particular and knives and all these female characters who are portrayed really positively mm-hmm but they have a lot of their agency reduced in the movie, especially Ramona, who's like, no, literally, he's controlling me. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, yeah. I, I, or, I can't remember the exact phrasing. He put like a control chip yeah. in her, whereas in the, the graphic novel, Gideon, Gideon Graves, has this power over everyone, basically emotional warfare, to the point where he has this sort of supernatural power called the glow, where he can manipulate people and... And stuff like that. Gideon Gideon Graves is sort of a very interesting enigma. Like he's a cartoonish supervillain mm-hmm. in the the Edgar Wright movie, but in the graphic novel, he's just like straight up, do not mess with this guy. Cause he will screw you six ways from Sunday. And then after he screwed you, he will then warp your mind. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Like mostly in the movie, it just seems to me to be like like the, the nebbish guy like scott is how he sees like a real grown-up person who does things (laughs) is what gideon is people really respect what he says and he's got a limo (laughs) he can make things happen nick t brought up uh the the portrayal in the graphic novels versus the movie in terms of the the female cast in regards to that the original idea for the film as i said before was scott was supposed to end up with knives and they made Knives be a, a bit more likable than Ramona because Ramona is incredibly cold and distant throughout the entire movie. Mm-hmm. And then Knives is, okay, she is she doesn't even hold a candle to her graphic novel counterpart, but she <laughs> she is still likable somewhat in the clingy stalker ex-girlfriend <laughs> fangirl kind of way. Oh, God, I need to change my address right in a second. <laughs> yeah. I find it interesting that the movie influenced the graphic novels because I was reading this quote from, um, I forget what the context of of it was, but it was Brian Lee O'Malley. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about how he wasn't a huge fan of the movie. Uh, And like, I had this quote here. I think it sucks that Scott Pilgrim came out so white. I am mixed white and Korean and grew up being told the race didn't matter. uh, That race was kind of over. As with many things you're told as a kid, it took me many years to realize that it wasn't really true. It was kind of wishful thinking on my part of, parents who are in a mixed relationship i mean i wish it was true we all wish it was true but it's not and then he talks about how he grew up in an extremely white environment how we hung out with asian kids but like a lot of his experiences weren't like that and then like Mm -hmm. it must be super weird to look back at your work and like to see the movie it's like oh they took my work as the source material and then they made it like this it's like oh that's not that's not what i was going for i'm going to be more defensive in regards to the edgar wright film uh, as opposed to the graphic novels and i i have nothing against brian lee o'malley as as a person but he didn't really set that up uh in the graphic novels like 
through reading it, through taking a look at everything that was involved, Scott seemed predominantly white. There was no real Asian influence or anything like that at all until he started hanging around in downtown Toronto. Like, he was in a Catholic school in... Oh, that's right. Like, northern Ontario. And then the only thing Mm. that's even remotely close to an asian character is um when scott goes to face off against simon lee who held kim hostage and he basically punches him so hard that he makes an indent in the moon (laughs) yeah but that as far as that is concerned like there was no real asian influence at all in scott pilgrim's character arc or or growth until you know knives enters the picture and even then it's still slim to say it it basically Mm. boils down to if you wanted this why didn't you include it it's one of those things that you don't think about until after your work is done it's like oh why didn't i flesh this out more or why didn't i do that and so the easiest thing sometimes is well this adaptation or this person's version of mine didn't quite hit what i wanted to hit well maybe the problem is how i did it Maybe I wasn't as thorough as I needed to be. I mean, maybe he didn't realize how it came off reading until he saw the result of somebody adapting what was there. And then he was like, oh. I mean, I mean he, I'm mean, i sure he's thought about it mm-hmm. since. I've heard since he, like, doesn't really... It's not that he hates Scott Pilgrim. He's like, I'm doing other stuff now. Mm-hmm. Like, leave me alone. I'm going to say something, and I mean, no offense to Brian Lee O'Malley... You guys have heard me say this just as we were setting up, but Brian Lee, yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you, Nick T? Brian Lee O'Malley is a hipster, very much so (laughs) in practically everything that he does, and it's okay with that. Um, There's nothing wrong with that, but this is what happens when things get mainstream, unfortunately, and you can't just look at it going, oh, I, I don't like this will guess what that really puts you on the map and in the public spotlight you gotta own it brother you gotta you gotta rock it play wonder wall every once in a while you know (laughs) there were incredibly minute differences in scott pilgrim the 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 movie as opposed to the graphic novel like little things that you wouldn't even think made any difference such as knives's hair color change (laughs) <laughs> like in the graphic novel, she's she's got a red stripe. In the movie, she's blue. Lots of different things that are, are pretty much happening. Um, when Scott gets the, the one-up in the, the movie versus when he gets it in the graphic novel. Uh, how he fights the, the Karyanagi twins. The final showdown against Gideon Graves. Where in the graphic novel, Scott and Ramona team up and take him down together. Whereas in the graphic novel, it's like, no, Scott is going to be kicking ass and taking names in this one. Oh, interesting. There's a lot of references to the venues that happen in and around uh, downtown Toronto, and some of which Brian Lee O'Malley hung around in, such as Club Rocket, which shows up, which was actually closed down in 2005. So for the, the Edgar Wright movie they had to basically recreate uh, the rocket club which is even yeah they did Hmm. they had to do that brian lee o'malley has personally gone on record saying that he hated it that it was cramped (sighs) ugly and terrible and even scott pilgrim in the graphic novel says it's basically a toilet (laughs) (laughs) 
Lee's Palace, uh, which is located on Bloor Bathurst near Honest Ed's, that wasn't filmed at Lee's Palace. They also had to recreate it. And the reason why is just because for filming purposes, they needed to essentially have places where they can stick the cameras a lot better. And if you've ever been in Lee's Palace, it is all very conjoined. Like it's it's all being able to pull off some of the shots that Edgar Wright wanted to do hmm. would have been impossible without knocking down walls. They filmed it all in Toronto, but it sounds like they had to recreate a bunch of stuff when they were there. Yep. <laughs> they did. And once again, it's it's Edgar Wright. They had money to do so. I was I spent time watching the, the behind-the-scenes featurettes and Edgar Wright. Uh, God bless him. I, I was watching him, and he was doing a lot of the, the workout and the training stuff with the actors and having a lot of fun. And they brought in so many different uh, musicians that were also helping in the production as well because they brought in... Chris Murphy, who is technically the lead bassist of Sloan, because they all sort of jump around. He was helping uh, everyone sort of get up to snuff. They had members of Broken Social Scene show up and give their sort of take on the music production, as well as Metric, who basically is Clash at Demon Head. Like, if you listen back to the soundtrack, it's like, yeah, that's that's straight up Metric. And even Beck went out and created, like, Beck, Beck is done. Beck is weird. Um, Washboard but- solo. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> two turntables and a microphone they basically got back and he's like yeah uh we want you to to do not beck songs we want you to do some <laughs> sex bob songs and he's like challenge accepted <laughs> and helped help the creation of that there was a lot of things going on in the the production as well um so everyone in sex bomb with the exception of michael sarah had never played an instrument oh wow up until that yeah. point yeah, Michael Sarah was the only member of Sex Bomb who actually was somewhat familiar with bass. And Edgar Wright said this in, in one of the documentaries, but he said, I kind of felt like Michael was trying to, to, to tone it down just a little bit, just so that he didn't overplay everyone else <laughs> because he had that, that experience. That's like the opposite of what I would have expected. I mean, maybe it's just because he's supposed to be Scott. But I yeah. would expect Michael Sarah is like, oh, I'm sorry. I don't know how to play. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. That's pretty much Michael Sarah's like personality. Mm-hmm. He's he's a very quiet, reserved kind of person. But no, people were all sounding off saying, yeah, he can actually play. And we're all very intimidated. Allison <laughs> Pill, who does the, the role of um, Kim Pine. There's a documentary featurette of her and the entire crew getting ready to perform, I guess, uh, We Are Sex Bomb. And she's like, I, I I, don't know how to play drums and I have to learn how to do a count-in and do the count-in on time. Help me. <laughs> so let me briefly talk about the fandom of uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Because this is sort of tying in with hmm. Ryan Lee O'Malley and the movie as a whole and the graphic novels as a whole. So... The original fandom for Scott Pilgrim vs. the World was on a Ing website way back in the day, a, a brief forum board. Sorry, this is, the, this is the second time you mentioned this. What is an Ing website? Uh, Ing is sort of like... it. That, that Give me a second. I think Ing was just sort of like a, a hostgator okay. or a GoDaddy oh, okay. type thing. Okay, just a particular Yeah, it, it was just the... Yeah, it was the, the host site. And um, essentially... The forum board was was small, but amongst the the community there, they were all really really diehard. And Brian Lee O'Malley was part of the community and would occasionally post and and things like that. And um, at the time, 
of the graphic novels, like, because uh, a lot of people I spoke with Rebecca Blanchard once again. Thank you for giving me uh, your information. Who was a part of the the mod community as well as uh, Aaron Achetta. He was the 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 background character um, artist. Yes, the background character artist. Thank you for the the sixth volume of Scott Pilgrim. He's added himself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I gave him the link. Thank you very much, Aaron. I love you. But um, in regards to that, it was a, a really small, close-knit community that of people that were all just really, really diehard in regards to it. And they would show up at San Diego Comic-Con uh, for the, the Scott Pilgrim panel. Aaron said something along the lines of how the fans waited like 10 hours outside just to get into the panel. But he managed to get a pass because he was one of the, the artists, so he managed to get in. And uh, it was a great small little community. And then once the final volume hit, like once volume six hit and the, the Edgar Wright movie came out, it eventually slowly started dying out because the journey was over. Everything had been completed. Everyone had accomplished what they needed to accomplish. They still keep greatly in touch, but uh, it, it just sort of just like how Scott Pilgrim was transitioning towards adulthood and into a new relationship with Ramona life is getting in the way for those original people. And they eventually chose to dissolve the forum boards because they, they, there wasn't as much activity. The journey was over. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of discussion on this in the, in the Scott Pilgrim subreddit, mm-hmm. but uh, like, I didn't see much uh, in my research, but in, in regards to like you and Scott Pilgrim or, or people, you know, is there much uh, appetite for wanting more of it? Like, do you want more comics or or another adaptation? Okay, so in regards to this, I'm going to differ just a little bit. I would have liked there, instead of six volumes, to there be a seventh volume, one for each evil ex-boyfriend. I mean, that makes sense. Uh... And I lost my mind when I found out there was only six (laughs) volumes. I'm just like... I have no problem with how the story was told. Absolutely no problem. Well, okay, with minor things, I prefer the movie way more. But in regards to the graphic novels, I was sitting there going, there. I felt like there should have been a seventh volume, maybe maybe like an unofficial volume going, okay, this is what happens if he decided to stop acting like a dick and got together with knives, kind of like how the Edgar Wright just did two different versions of the ending mm-hmm. and how that sort of might have changed. But once again... The decision to go with Ramona is the canon ending, which I do respect. I don't have a problem with uh, it. Just the I wish there was a seventh volume, just one for each evil X. That's funny because just like thematically, that makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. But also having like reading a lot of manga, it's just really <laughs> nice to have like that extra volume where you just have the the after the fact. It's like, here's where all these side stories went. Or here's just a fun little extra thing that maybe we couldn't fit into the main story. Uh, the Silmarillion to the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> nope, nobody wants that. Boy, oh boy. No, nobody wants that. What you're asking for is like a 10-volume series about Scott and Kim when they're kids. <laughs> kind of, you know, have little foreshadowing for all the evil exes and Ramona. I don't know. Hmm. That's what we really want. <laughs> but yeah, the the community, for the most part, they were happy with what happened. And they all, just like Scott, grew up and and moved on to bigger and better things or worse things. I, I don't really know who these people are. So I, I hope 
better things we'll we'll see fingers crossed yeah i kind of in some ways wish and this is a terrible idea mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it'd be very I like interesting where we're going yeah it's great if if like people volunteered to track their fandoms over time immediately my thought was hey what if people had like a thing like a goose where you put it on their wrist or whatever and then just literally follow them around then i realized how dystopian that sounded (laughs) but the idea of following someone's interest in a fandom over time and being able to really map that as opposed to being able to guess that which is what we do now we Mm -hmm. we don't really know where fandoms Mm -hmm. migrate but what you were talking about i'm curious where people would have went to after they went to scott pilgrim did they wait until seconds came out which was quite a bit afterwards did they get into more indie comics more indie music oh that's true yeah yeah in regards to that so after the the completion of scott pilgrim brian lee o'malley immediately took a sabbatical and i don't blame the guy that entire graphic novel that experience that entire momentum took up god knows how many years of his life and still does to this day He'll probably begrudgingly get asked questions about Scott Pilgrim, <laughs> even though he doesn't want anything to do with it anymore. But that, that immediately after, you know, being a part of a journey like that, he needs to refresh and recharge. Hmm. Yeah. So like in your own experience, after the graphic novel was finished, after the movie was you know long past done, did you hang on for seconds or do you think that your fandom for Scott Pilgrim kind of migrated more towards the musical side of it, as you kind of suggested before? My Scott Pilgrim fandom definitely t- went towards the musical thing. So I'm I'm a little bit of a, a an oddball in regards to the Scott Pilgrim fandom, because I originally, I started my band first, then I watched the, the, the movie, and I became a huge fan of the movie. But I didn't read the graphic novels until like oh god i think about maybe a year and a half ago two years ago i was working in a cult center i'm like i haven't read the graphic novels but i'm a huge fan of the movie i need to get caught up on this and so when i was in the call center i'd start reading this and i'm like he did what he did what <laughs> my manager would walk by and basically look at me going dude do your job i will in just one second i need to (laughs) so for me i definitely carried on the scott pilgrim legacy towards my music and my stage performance it impacts not really how i do songwriting as per se but the attitude is very much scott pilgrim so i'll do things like do like whirlwind spins with my guitar jump kicks i'll look around the the stage and i'll see parts where i can jump off of without damaging my knees i'll try to be as entertaining and bombastic as the movie portrayal of sex bomb back during that time and once again yeah I, I carry i carry the movie on my back and i carry my influences with me in every single endeavor that i go regardless of what they do and i try to implement that in my creative endeavors um i have a joke question and then a real question okay <laughs> <laughs> the joke question is have you had any uh amp versus amp gigs oh you <laughs> i'm i'm not going to lie i want that <laughs> i want that so hard <laughs> You want just a wall of sound against another wall of sound. 
Hear me out. So I wanted to do, uh, uh, obviously you can't do it because once again, the sound would just bleed each other out. But what would be good is if you have one band set up and another band set up and the, the first band would do their song finish, the second band would then start theirs. And then the audience would basically have a rabble between which bands they liked more rather than both bands going at the same time, kind of like a, a back and forth, like it's a, a game of chess or tennis or something like that. That'd be fun. Although it would have to be like two bands that are in really friendly competition because once again, some people take it way too far and I get the feeling like it will turn into a fight. I just realized now that twice in the movie there were music battles. Mm-hmm. Or I guess three times if you count Matt's. Like there was the bass battle, there was the Katayanagi twins, and then there was Matt mm-hmm. Patel's mm-hmm. kind of Bollywood. There was a lot of music battles, more than I thought. <laughs> that was actually the hardest thing for Edgar Wright because he was sitting there and he's like this movie's a comedy but it's an action film and there's music <laughs> thrown in I don't know how we're going to deal with this but I'm going to try to do my best and he was quite worried as to how he was going to implement so many different styles and some people will look at it and go yeah there was too much other people will look at it and go this was the movie that spoke for my generation, so I'm going to support this wholeheartedly. So it really just boils down to who you are as a person and how you view art as a whole. And there's no incorrect way because, once again, when it boils down to opinions, no one has a, a wrong opinion unless it's something that's really out there. But for the most part, yeah, I... I popular consensus to you had a real question i did and then i thought of a different better one (laughs) (laughs) perfect you're saying for that situation uh to occur when you have a you know a ping-ponging of of bands playing songs back and forth Mm -hmm. they'd have to be pretty friendly with each other one thing that you wrote in your notes that you shared with us is is one thing that scott pilgrim gets right musically is the undercurrent of animosity amongst bands yes As someone who's been in the Toronto music scene for eight years, uh, Jesus Christ, I'm, I'm getting old. But um, <laughs> as someone who's done various different uh, shows, performed with multiple different bands, regardless of who it is, there's always going to be some animosity that happens. And that's simply because we are all performers. We're all on the same showcase, regardless of of who we are as a person, we're all trying to be the best band of that night. We're all Mm. trying to have the fans show up to the show and look at it and go, man, City and Wires was amazing. None of the other bands came close. We want people to have those good memories to show up at our future shows, to buy our merch, to like and enjoy our songs so that we can grow further, not only as a band, but as a brand. Because once again, Some people get into music for, you know, the fun of it, to do it as a hobby. Me personally, I've been doing this for eight years. For me, I want to make this a full-time career. Mm -hmm. And so regardless of who we're playing with, there's always going to be that animosity. And Brian Lee O'Malley gets the animosity down pat. I believe he's played in bands before, so I believe he gets that quite well. Uh, The one thing that Scott Pilgrim, uh, the graphic novels, and the movie for that matter, didn't fully explain or or I felt was quite wrong was talking about how Sex Bob-omb 
are getting these gigs at these venues because it's a lot more than just calling up saying hey i got a band you you willing to take us in there's an entire social circle amongst the the toronto venue scene and with a, a lot of people they'll either go and talk to whether they'll they'll sit there and go what shows have you done and they'll try to call up those venue people. Like when I tried to do the Elma Combo uh, at the time when it was being run by uh, this Catholic organization, we went in and the guy basically took a photo of me and faxed a photo of me to some of the venue owners in downtown Toronto. And I'm a young, early 20s kid and I'm sweating bullets because I'm sitting there looking at him going, if I do something wrong, this could have massive backlash. Holy crow. So in Scott Pilgrim, they all just say, oh, we're doing a show at this venue. And I'm like, you you don't have a strong fan base. You don't have a strong following. <laughs> you would have had to work with a promotional company. You would have had to be forced to sell tickets. You might even have to do the, uh, and this is the the worst thing that a promotional company can ever do, is hold your set time hostage until mm. like, two to three days before the show dependent on how your ticket sales are because most of the time oh yes man that has happened to me so many times with searching for kim it got to the point where i was consistently putting 200 dollars down on almost every show just to make sure that we had a decent set time because the promotion company which is no longer in service so i can throw them under the bus supernova (laughs) supernova was basically scamming young artists and they're like yeah so tell us how many tickets you sold in like two to three days before the show we'll give you your set time and if you don't have enough ticket sales they'll make it go oh yeah you're starting at eight o'clock but people don't file in till around nine at ten at night and it's either on a weekday or 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 at some godforsaken time so scott pilgrim for sex bomb to get those shows and them just saying, yeah, we, we got this gig. Me as a musician just bugs out of my eyes going, how? How did you? <laughs> that That is not realistic in any sense of fashion whatsoever. But you remember in the graphic novels, which you've now read. Yes. Stephen Stills is freaking the fuck out. And now you know yeah. why. Because he's like, yeah. Scott's like, oh, whatever. I'm going to go date people and fight evil exes. <laughs> and Stephen is just like. I, I need to get us some gigs. I need yeah. to get us some gigs. And he's like, that's why he's so stressed by the end of the book series. Well, the, the another thing that they seem to get right as well is the the hell that comes with animosity also between bandmates. Like, there's a, a brief period where they're trying to record an EP and they're not really working together because Steven is primarily just recording Kim has stopped playing drums because they don't really need her at that point. And I even mentioned this uh, during my YetiCon thing when I talked about the Scott Pilgrim rule, where uh, I talked about uh, how Kim and Ramona were talking at Julie's house party. She said something along the lines of, say, aren't you in a band? And it's like, it's been weeks since uh, I've played drums. And sometimes I I wonder if there's really uh, a point to all of this. And she, for her, she was a, a live musician. She just wanted to get on stage. She just wanted to play drums in, in the rehearsal factory, wherever they were performing. And, uh, it, it really captures how, when you're trying to, to get your band to go places, how things can fall apart, how there's tension, uh, between, uh, inner members of the band. And it gets to the point where eventually Steven 
says, I'm creating a brand new band. And Scott goes, oh, do you need a bass player? And Steven's like, no, nah, I'm continuing this one without you. And so Scott and Kim are sort of left on their own while Steven is uh, performing at uh, Cameron House in uh, downtown Toronto, mm-hmm. which I believe is, I believe it's Queen and Bathurst. It's been a while since I've been to the Cameron House. Yeah, 408 Queen Street West. He is the talent. He is, which is funny for me because once again the the actor portraying Stephen Stills in, in the movie he didn't know how to play guitar and he had never sang live before. What? What? Yes, all of that was basically showcased in the uh, the making of featurettes. He's sitting there and he the, all the cameras are on him and he's like, "I'm not going to lie, I've never sang live before," and it is freaking me out. That I have to <laughs> play We Are Sex Bomb in front of all these people. So you're going to be playing the guy that wow. that has way more talent than everybody else in the band and has everything <laughs> together. Yeah. Holy crow. It's the acting game, my friend. That's that's why they make the big bucks. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I've got a little bit of a joke question here, although maybe there's a serious edge to it. I'm excited. We'll for see. This. Yeah. How important do you think it is to be Canadian to be a fan of Scott Pilgrim? Uh, okay, so this is this is going to be a, a very difficult question. This was a joke question. This is serious. This is some <laughs> philosophical stuff. This is up there with if you were a tree, what would you be? Um, this is identity. <laughs> pretty, pretty much. Um, in regards to that, like Scott Pilgrim in on itself is intrinsically Canadian. Like all of it is just dripping with uh, Canadian references and and in jokes and things like that. It's, it's not just Canadian. It's also being part of the Toronto core things like second cup, pizza, pizza references to Canadian bands. Like if you look throughout the volumes, you see different people wearing Sloan t-shirts and plum tree, which was, surprisingly how uh brian lee o'malley got the name for scott pilgrim the, there was a college rock band all-girl college rock band called plum tree they had a song called scott pilgrim and brian lee o'malley named scott after that <laughs> you don't have to be canadian to enjoy scott pilgrim versus the world but it definitely helps it definitely heightens increases the overall palette of the poutine that is scott pilgrim (laughs) fine canadian sauce you know (laughs) because it's like like things like in the graphic novel they go to the library and he he puts in it the library hours yeah just like little things which i i assume were the real hours i assume he had no reason to change them in any way I unfortunately have not reread the graphic novel in the short time because I was busy trying to get caught up on Lost at Sea. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I watched last week's podcast. But in regards to that, yeah, it's it's an unabashed love letter to the city of Toronto. And it's little things like that. Like once again, including the hours of operation for the Toronto Reference Library, little factoids about it, little in-jokes and references, all of which makes it that much more enjoyable not only being a canadian but also being part of the toronto scene and a lot of those references will go over your head if you're an international reader or or viewer of the movie 
I'm not saying, once again, that you can't enjoy it. I'm just saying that it's going to fly over your head and you might not get the full experience unless you've actually been there. Well, yeah, it's like it's not it's not really going to change your understanding of the of the story to know what pizza pizza is. Yeah. But (laughs) if you do know what it is, then you have that feeling of like it's the only thing that's open and you kind of have to settle for it. And I remember being really I'm not a Torontonian, but I've been there plenty of times. I I remember being really excited identifying when they're in pizza pizza. It's the one that's like across the street from like (laughs) Lee's Palace and Sonic Boom and Amistad's. Yeah, it's like the fourth corner of that intersection. (laughs) <laughs> what is the name of that stupid book that you and Z like, G? Infinite Jest? Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> okay, uh, there's a point to this. Okay. I'm excited. Okay, so I'll show this here. It definitely won't show up on camera, but it's here, maybe. Yeah. That was a bit of, like, Casaloma's details. The footnotes, all the details to Toronto, uh, whether they're written or in image form, are like the footnotes in Infinite Jest. It's, like, part of the experience not only seeing the story, seeing the style, but having it be so integrated into the plot of... Not, not even the plot, just the fabric of the books. Also, apparently, Casa Loma opened May through October. <laughs> oh man, last submission's at 4pm, guys. <laughs> Once again, there are things that can change over time. Like, for example, Casa Loma could change their hours of operation depending on the season. It's been years since the books came out but even then it still very much once again was a time capsule a product of his time and one that i cannot watch the edgar wright movie without immediately being taken back to the first time where i watched it at the the cinemas at square one which unfortunately are now condemned but Hmm. it very much brings forth not only where i was what i was feeling it makes me feel nostalgic for that certain moment in time kind of like how all the references probably make brian Lee O'Malley nostalgic for his childhood and things like that like i remember hearing a story where they were interviewing the the lead singer of clash at demon head the the actress is her name escapes me good lord uh brie, brie larson brie Lar- thank you brie larson captain marvel yeah I would not have pieced that together unless I was doing research for this episode. <laughs> yeah, but Brie Larson, she talked about how uh, Brian Lee O'Malley told her what the Clash at Demon Head was. And it was one of the first video games that Brian Lee O'Malley played and owned. And little things like that. Like, you can tell this is a very personal and near and dear story to Brian Lee O'Malley. So just like how it makes me feel nostalgic, it makes him feel nostalgic. Mm-hmm. Since you brought it up, T, do you have uh, our uh, famous last words from our guest last week? Oh, I do. Uh, let's dun, see. Dun, dun. So, <laughs> so last week we had Lauren Orsini, the otaku journalist, and as it turns out, like the source if you want to know about gunpla. <laughs> yeah. As I found out during last week's research, but she had asked, "What did you think of Lost at Sea? Do you want to talk about Lost at Sea with Lauren?" Yeah. <laughs> Things that I didn't do. Read Lost at Sea before we did this episode. So just <laughs> give me start like now? 20 minutes. So, yeah, no, 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 there's no way. I unfortunately did not fully finish Lost at Sea, but I, I did start. I'm, I'm, I'm a good like three quarters into it right now. And um, it's very hard to wrap my head around it because the, the main character, I, I feel like she has some sort of 
mental health issue going on with it because a, a lot of how she formulates things are are very different and very unique and i'm not saying i don't like it i'm just saying that i get the feeling that there's more to her story as a person uh and i feel that this is a, a very uh near and dear and, and serious story between her and her four friends going on this road trip out in the middle of america i have no clue where she's going but uh they're going there and and as a result since i haven't finished it it's very difficult for me to to give a, a final lasting impression but i would absolutely love to talk uh lost at sea or any of his other works in regards to how i currently feel about lost at sea once again brian lee o'malley is a hipster <laughs> <laughs> I mean that in the, the nicest way possible. It's like <laughs> he's always got to shoehorn veganism into it. And there's a there's a brief portion where they're asking the main character, oh, what are you reading? And she could just easily say one of the Harry Potter books. But no, they deliberately choose to say it in French. And I'm like, uh, what was the purpose behind this? <laughs> what, are you are you doing this deliberately just to make yourself be unique? In, in in edgy we all had a shadow the hedgehog <laughs> phase but come on <laughs> fandoms we have not covered yet sonic the hedgehog y- you do realize what my username is right yeah well yes oh, yeah. i don't know what the oh wait no never mind <laughs> i pieced it together i figured it out it's yeah. good sonic mtd since march 2006 wow it has been that long but yeah, in regards to that, that's that's how I feel about Lost Sea. I want to just very briefly, before we continue the the last word questions, um, I want one last thing that I I wanted to say that I found kind of funny. So Michael Sarah Scott Pilgrim beat up Captain America Chris Evans yeah. and Brandon yeah. Roth, who is Superman. So what you gonna yeah. do, Marvel? <laughs> and Captain Marvel was there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> beat her up, but she was there. What's that meme that was going around? Biggest uh biggest crossover events. Uh, clearly they haven't seen Scott Pilgrim. Yeah. There's definitely people have definitely made trailers of like Lucas Lee is Captain America. Yeah. <laughs> I saw that. That was on the Reddit. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so good. Should we go through the rest of the famous last words? I think some of them were already addressed. I'm willing to very briefly go over them again. Okay. Mine was about, like, did people get into the music part of it from the graphic novels alone? And from what I can tell, not really. I mean, when Sex of is playing songs at a couple points in the in the graphic novel, the lyrics are there and he shows you the chords. Mm-hmm. It's not really, as, as I said before when I was watching uh, the movie, it's not really about the music. Like, um, a lot of it is completely clashes with the sound that I was doing with Searching for Kim, the sound I'm doing now with City and Wires. But for me, Scott Pilgrim always will represent a a feeling, a mentality, a, a mood set that you take with you in regards to doing live shows and, and stage performances and things like that. So that's that's how I incorporate it in my music. Music for the Scott Pilgrim stuff, especially the soundtrack, I think the only major song that i listen to is the the we are sex bomb i've performed summertime and garbage truck maybe <laughs> once in my entire music career and that was probably at at lola's located in kensington market but other than that the music of scott pilgrim 
isn't really for me. It's more the mindset. Everything has to say about music rather than like the soundtrack. Mm -hmm. I had asked how popular is Scott as a character within the fandom. I wasn't able to find that, but sounds like he's a dillweed. (laughs) Yeah, he's to quote once again, Rebecca Blanchard. She said he is a trash dillweed and so is Ramona. And that's why they are perfect (laughs) together. (laughs) I've hung around Rebecca uh, a little bit and she was always one of those too cool for school kind of people and i'm just like did did you just call him uh, what, what what is this blood coming out of my ears <laughs> love you rebecca z said how divisive was the movie well as i said earlier there was sort of a, a split because there were people that absolutely got it and loved it and wanted to be a part of it and then there were people that were just like i don't understand or it's not for me type thing so it had that natural split the same goes with the the graphic novels right like i i almost stopped reading scott pilgrim versus the world after the first volume just because he was that dislikable so it it really boils down to who you are as a person and as well uh, i'm i'm surprised we never talked about the uh the video game that's right that uh, came out originally for the the ps3 and the xbox 360 um I don't know why they haven't did the relaunch. Like in my notes, they talked about uh, music licensing problems with Anna Monaguchi, but the video game as well, I love and cherish it. My PS3 still has it on and it you can't get it anymore because of the, the issues that I believe were involving uh, the music rights with Anna Monaguchi. And um, it expanded upon more in terms of what's going on with Scott Pilgrim and little things that weren't shown before. Like, um, at the end of the game, it shows sort of like all the the side characters and what they're doing afterwards. And one of the ones shows Gideon Graves inside his own subspace, showing him Gideon Graves' status permanently lost in the void. So it's like, he's not just dead. Just like how in the the movie, Scott was in that that desert, that subspace desert inside his own Mm -hmm. head. Gideon Graves is now permanently lost in that. And that was a nice little touch that they threw in. Yeah. Uh, same goes with uh, fights between Niggascott and, and Hillcrest Park, uh, which is completely different than uh, the Brian Lee O'Malley graphic novel and uh, the the movie interpretation as well. So I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the video game, and I really do wish that we could get a re-release so anamanaguchi if you are watching this (laughs) please sign what you need to be signed i will buy a album from you i i do listen to chiptune music i'm a huge fan of she i am willing to get further into you and possibly also to pick up a slime girls album whatever comes first oh my god slime girls uh hyper potions loving them yeah I wonder what our lives would be like if every time we said, if you're listening, so-and-so, if they were listening. <laughs> the obvious answer is, like, comment, subscribe, uh, listen to our <laughs> iTunes. <laughs> I will be brutally honest. There, there have been times in my YouTube career where I've done a cover of an artist's song and the artist actually gets in contact with me. What? One of my favorite bands was a power pop group called the Rosenbergs, which were around in New York. They're known famously for a lot of the songs that were used in uh, undergrads. Okay, yeah. Oh, hey. Most predominantly, 
the song uh, Overboard, which was the very last song in the last episode, like as everyone's going away for the summer. And I did a cover of Overboard and like a couple months later, I get this bizarre comment and I'm like sitting there going, hey, this is David Fagan of the Bergs. I really liked your cover. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> and I, I checked I checked the, the YouTube channel and sure enough, it was him. And like for a good solid like two two and a half months i had this giant cheshire cat grin yeah. like i was walking around i'm like yay i'm finally somebody <laughs> take that plebs <laughs> <laughs> no you don't want to think you're better than anyone else because it when you reach that stage then that's when your career starts to snowball is there any other questions that was the Famous last words. We're welcome to ask more questions, but that was all the things that past us had to ask. I would jump in just to say that uh, I would agree that the movie was just it split people. Mm -hmm. wasn't very divisive. Perhaps because people united over their communal hatred of uh, <laughs> casting when it comes to Michael Sarah. Some people who liked the movie did not like the fact that Scott was played by Michael Sarah. Some people hated the movie because Michael Sarah was playing Scott. So... You brought up a, a very interesting point, and I do want to actually expand upon this. Sure. I think Michael Sarah did good with what he was given. Uh, Michael Sarah is one of those actors who gets typecast. Yeah. Primarily, they want a continuation of who he was in Arrested Development. Oh. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. he tried doing things that uh, broke the mold. He did, oh my god, what was the name of that that Youth. movie where he was like a bad guy? Youth and Revolt? Youth and Revolt, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. He did Youth and Revolt and audience members didn't like it. It wasn't until this is the end where people were sitting there and going, oh, my God, like he could do <laughs> things besides being who he was in Superbad and, and Arrested Development. Oh, because he was like playing himself, but as like a dick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like just like a very big league celebrity type version of him. Did anybody see Molly's game? Mm. I don't know. Okay. He plays toby mcguire <laughs> yeah like no, no like in real it's a it's autobiographical so mm. they wanted somebody who's not toby mcguire to, to play him yeah but he's supposed to be this like big person organizing all these different poker games mm -hmm. and he's supposed to be a huge jerk but like it's hard to do because it's michael Sarah. I think, once again, it boils down to casting choices, Hollywood perception, and uh, studio meddling, sort of a mix of all three. I feel like Michael Sarah is capable of more, but I feel like he's perpetually typecast to play the same type of roles throughout. I might be completely wrong, but after seeing him in This Is The End, I got the feeling that he's capable of really going forth with it. But once again, the studio has a certain expectation and then fan audiences are all sitting there wanting the continuation of pre-existing Michael Sarah archetypes. At least that's my two cents. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen him in too much that's like completely outside of that. Mm -hmm. He was a lawyer in Wet Hot American Summer, the series. <laughs> he also does voice over work as well. Yeah. Before he was on Arrested Development, he was Brother Bear and Bernstein Bears. I do know that. Oh, oh what? wow. Yep. Before we go, I just want to say something that I haven't thought about until now, primarily because it's been a long day. Another way that my life somehow bleeds into Scott Pilgrim. I currently work for Amazon. Oh, there you go. 
we're in the middle oh, of prime week right now and uh it's 12 hour days Oof. five days a week it's it's brutal but uh, i just want to say if brian lee if you ever watched this you lied and romanticized <laughs> amazon to the nth degree <laughs> i gotta ask are you a delivery guy or like in the warehouse or what uh unfortunately uh, i don't have the booty shorts i work in the warehouse <laughs> Uh, nothing stopping you from wearing booty shorts in the warehouse (laughs) (laughs) the hr team the hr team all right right. i think we should move on to the spotlight yeah sure what are we doing for the spotlight fill me in the spotlight is usually where we show off a fanish cause or a cool thing related to the fandom that we're talking about this week I had a really hard time finding something related to Scott Pilgrim because some sometimes people have done like, oh, we made this fan survey or we were running this charity marathon or we, I don't know, built a giant Michael Sarah pinata and held an event or something like yeah. that. I don't know. I couldn't find anything quite like that. I did want to try to find a connection between Brian Lee O'Malley, Scott Pilgrim, and Chrono Trigger. The closest I found is that Chrono Trigger is referenced a couple times in seconds, and, like, at least once in Scott Pilgrim, we got some X-Strike going on there. (laughs) Uh, And I found out that Brian Lee O'Malley had done some fan art of Luca, but I couldn't find anything else. So, insert spotlight here. (laughs) I'll just have, like, a big one-up or something. Like, if you can do this, you get a one-up. I don't know. I couldn't find anything. It's okay. Mm -hmm. The spotlight on City and Wires, maybe? Sorry, what? Spotlight on my band, City and Wires. Yeah. I don't know, do you want to do you want to plug your band or talk about? Uh... Well, I got a, I got a bunch of plugs just for the sake of the people that I've cited. So I'll I'll do my band at the end. But okay, uh, cool. Once again, for my research, I would very much like to thank uh, Rebecca Blanchard for giving me information about uh, the original uh, community, as well as uh, Aaron and Chetta, who was the character artist for Volume Six. You can take a look at his work at a Anchetta, which is a a n c h e t a dot com. He's also available on Twitter dot com slash Maddox fan m a d d o x f a n x. In regards to me, I'm the lead singer and frontman and primary songwriter of rock band City and Wires. So go into Facebook and you can search City and Wires and you can see a photo of my big dumb mask everywhere. And uh, hopefully you can come out to one of our shows. And if you do and you you see me standing by myself, don't be afraid to come over and talk to me. Also, uh, I do want to give a brief tip of the cap to my buddy Media Mike, Michael DeVoe, over at What to Play Gaming, where we did a playthrough series on the Scott Pilgrim vs. the World video game, which the entire series is available there. And finally, one major plug for myself, because let's face it, I'm a raving egomaniac. My name is Matthew Tyler DeLeo. I go by the name Sonic MTD, uh, where I do uh, anime, video game, and uh, movie reviews. And I also do musical covers and various different live streams. You can see me on YouTube.com slash SonicMTD. That is capital S, small O, small N, small I, small C, capital M, capital T, capital D. And I guarantee you will like what you see. (laughs) Amazing. Nice. 
So if you uh, have listened to this episode and you want more, you can find all of our episodes over at the uh, Brian Spank and Shiny New Fantopological.com, as well as where all good podcasts are found, all good podcatchers. And uh, if you're using a podcatcher to uh, listen to the show, we'd appreciate it if you gave us a rating or review and uh, hit the subscribe button to get a brand new uh, episode on a different fandom every Friday. This podcast is Fantopological, but the three of us are the Cast, and you can find us all over the internet. At the next cast, that's Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook. Just Google the next cast and we will pop up. <laughs> right. So why is G throwing it to me? Well, that's because it is the summer. It is hot outside. And that is why it is the best time to be inside and play video games. Or in your case, watch people play video games. <laughs> we are doing the Race Against Time for the fourth year that we are doing this. It is our annual charity video gaming marathon where we play through Chrono Trigger, try to get its 13 different endings, and raise money for the Alzheimer's Society of Canada. Much like in Chrono Trigger, where we are trying to prevent a future that may never happen, at least for the characters involved, we are trying to raise money for the Alzheimer's Society and prevent a future with Alzheimer's. Maybe it'll never happen. Maybe we'll not get there. But we're going to try. If you want to check that out, you can go to raceagainsttime.io or twitch.tv slash theraceagainsttime, both of which take you to the same spot. Uh, you can also go to raceagainsttime.io slash donate if you want to donate ahead of time. And uh, up until the event, which is August 11th and 12th, we are streaming every week a different time-related game. Man, there's like so much that I could say about the Race Against Time because we also have shirts. There are shirts! You can buy them! This is now intergalactic uh, cable. <laughs> no. But you can go to twitch.tv slash theraceagainsttime. Check all that stuff out. It includes the schedule of the events, which games we're playing and when. You should definitely check it out. If you can donate, the Alzheimer's Society, I'm sure, appreciates it. We definitely appreciate your watching, your donating. Thank you. Before we go to Z, you just reminded me we need to make a little more room in the in the uh, plug area of the podcast for shop.thenextcast.com. Oh, God. Where <laughs> <laughs> you get the classic ranger with the Fantopological logo or limited edition only until the race. We have our, our Race Against Time shirts with our, with our beautiful R logo. All the um, purchases of which will uh, send that money directly to the Alzheimer's Society of Canada. So that's shop.thenextcast.com over to UZ. Thank you, G. All I've got to say is that if you're listening to this as a podcast, thanks very much for listening. But might I interest you in watching us record these episodes live? We do it on Monday nights, usually around 8 p.m. Eastern Time. But it's always a good idea. Check on that Twitter to make sure that we're going to be going live around 8 on Mondays. And uh, once you've headed over to twitch.tv slash thenextcast, where we live stream these episodes, you can settle in, get comfortable, join us via the chat, ask us any questions you might have about the fandom uh, we're talking about that night, pose any questions you might want to pose to our guests that we have on. Um, And you might also want to add a question to the famous last words that's right famous last words. next week we will be talking about fans of speculative fiction what is speculative fiction because that is loaded for me it is fiction that is about hypothetical stuff that isn't entirely just about people feeling things in the present yeah we're basically talking about sci-fi literature yeah sci-fi fantasy not like present day general real life fiction 
So are we talking like scientific theories and, and things like that? Like theater, uh, theoretical physics or? From my understanding, it could be something that's like hard sci-fi like that. But what I always think of when I hear speculative fiction is Margaret Atwood. Okay. Like The Handmaid's Tale <laughs> or... Um, Oryx and Crake or... Oryx and Cray. Crake. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Crake. Crake. Yes, Oryx and In terms of people tipping their hands, you can tell that Z... <laughs> Is a, is a little bit involved in the literary world. Yeah. <laughs> to some degree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wouldn't necessarily say that it's about the scientific theories and whatnot so much as it is about like the human aspect of those theories. If such and such a theory is true, what does that mean for society mm. kind of thing? It's like a... I'm going to dumb this down for my own benefit. Yep. Sure. Like speculative fiction is like stories that are what if blank or this is yeah. something in an alternate universe mm-hmm. yeah right is that putting it too broadly i mean maybe a little bit but like cool. when you get into uh, literary genres broadness is hard to avoid yeah mm. i'm going to start us off with the famous last words mm-hmm. because i feel like this is hard i am going to ask to our guest we do have a guest for next week i forgot to mention that jen frankel uh author my question is the distinction between speculative fiction and genre fiction substantial so like you know, does it matter if this person's speculative fiction and this person's fantasy or sci-fi? Like, is there a big difference between the fans and those groups? Or is it just like, I like reading stories that aren't about horrible modern day dystopias. I don't know. <laughs> uh, that's a broad question, but hey, that's why I've got a week to research it. Who goes next? Whoever is feeling like they've got something. Jumping on what I think might be a trend, I'm going to ask is speculative fiction a label from authors from publishers from fans from all of them (laughs) i think it was chosen because it's so easy to say (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna say is speculative fiction meant to be cautionary is it all black mirror man this could be you or is it just like just saw this little thing and thought what if this became important etc etc is it meant to be cautionary I'll, i'll say all right yeah. Matt. My famous last words, besides avenge me. <laughs> <laughs> Where does speculative fiction toe the line? Like, when does something start to fray and doesn't qualify as speculative fiction? Like, because it seems like a very hard thing to describe, so much so that as a writer, it's never really entered my vernacular. It's never really entered my mind so how exactly do you toe the line where does something become speculative fiction and where does something not qualify for it i mean we'll get into it next week yeah the way i think about it in my head is is you're not supposed to answer my question that's right (laughs) (laughs) oh man he's been on our show once and he already knows it better than we do that's true (laughs) i guess all that remains say matt thank you for coming on the show and thank you for introducing yourself Anytime. It was a pleasure uh, meeting you guys at YetiCon. I hope to see you guys at future cons. And who knows, maybe if you do something in the future, uh, say, I don't know, Sonic the Hedgehog, you give me a ring. (laughs) If you ever want to cringe, just type your name in and then add the hedgehog. (laughs) Oh, man. You know what? (laughs) Make sure you have safer work stuff. Oh, 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 Jesus. <laughs> the, f- the first image result is tell me I'm pretty. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
<laughs> all right. That's about all the time we have. <laughs> Ending on a positive note. I love it. Right. <laughs> Thank you for listening, everyone. So until next time, we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Later days. See ya. ready to light this pig or put lipstick on this pig it's a lot of things that have pigs for some reason we're setting fire to a pig now all right cool isn't yeah, that yeah. The... the harvest will you, go on for you thought, 30 you years. thought you knew the format mm-hmm. no light yeah. this pig i you guys don't believe me uh i don't believe me either eh. grease this pig light up this pig is that what it is <laughs> maybe in in certain circles of uh the rap music. I followed the rap game. I don't think anyone <laughs> uses that expression. Um. Well, we could make it an expression. <laughs> I mean, the one the one that's more like about about pig roasts, you know, in the picnic context, camping context, you know. Uh, I'll never figure it out. It's fine. <laughs> it's gonna be like midway through the episode. No one's gonna know what we're talking about. It's, guys, this is what I was talking about. <laughs> <sighs> all right um i think i'm pretty much ready to go all right mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. oh no i'm not hang on matt how would you like me to introduce you uh oh good lord um what what exactly are we running with here i could introduce myself if you want uh, i have my i have my own <laughs> sign in our... actually yeah let's do that Okay, it's kick this pig, and it's in reference to a hog, a Harley. Kick this pig. Oh. oh okay. Like to get Sorry, I, to get I the motorcycle really started. Okay. All right. I couldn't figure I it thinking, out. But I was thinking it was like beating a dead horse or something. No, like no, no, I'm no. just like okay. Probably just quoting pop culture, totally unlike a thing that we're talking about today. We did. We don't tend to reference any pop culture. No, never, never about the uh the video game that's right that uh came out originally for the the ps3 and the xbox 360 um i don't know why they haven't did the relaunch like in my notes they talked about uh music licensing problems with anima uh, anamana gucci sorry (laughs) i'm not the only person who can't say that (laughs) i can say it anamana gucci i just it threw me off the first time I, I am quite good with my lyrical skill. I can sing one week by the bare naked ladies. Thank you very oh, much. Oh, you're in good company. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> but um yeah, the 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 video game as well, uh